The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times at this time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people. When those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the beast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise up, when salmon claims millions. When justice gives blind eyes to Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio Weekly. It is February the 10th, 2016. Uh, Max, do we have you on the line? I'm sorry, Max. Uh, start over. Um, my bad. I got you muted. Let's try that again. Max? <laughs> yes, sir. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parsons with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Nelaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is February 10th, 2016. On New Abolitionist Radio tonight, our returning guest will be George Mellencroft, author of the nonfiction book, Getting Away with Murder. George was a psychotherapist in the Florida prison while Darren Rainey was alive. George has been fighting for justice for Brother Rainey and his family. The story hasn't ended well, but has fulfilled George's title as the perpetrators have literally gotten away with murder. We'll fill you in on the details. It seems... Members of the Georgia Assembly are being told to apologize for comments made by a member of the lower house about the Civil War and slavery and the Ku Klux Klan. We're going to break this all down for you and show you just how real white supremacists and slavers are running this country through our political arena. Minneapolis, St. Paul, February 2nd, 2016, the introduction says, the Robina Institute of Criminal Law and Criminal Justice is pleased to announce new research on American Exceptionalism in Probation Supervision, published in a data brief by Mario Albert, Alessandro Cordo, and Kevin R. Wright. This is the first in a series of data briefs that will compare community supervision rates in the United States and Europe. We've been warning you about the probation for profit industry, and today we have the facts that prove this right. Dr. Dennis Childs, author of Slaves of the State, Black Incarceration, from the chain gang to the penitentiary, is offering a very different perspective in regards to mass incarceration. He says, capitalism, slavery, racism, and imprisonment of people of color cannot be separated. And this new book provides new insight on modern slavery. We'll talk about it. Colorado's total marijuana tax revenue results for the 2015 calendar year have been released. We'll share the information and tell you where that money is going. The U.S. Justice Department filed a civil rights lawsuit against Ferguson, Missouri on Wednesday to enforce police and court reform 
reform plan after the city said it wanted to amend some aspects of a consent decree it had reached with the federal agency. We cut the details. This week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad are the Central Park Five. Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana, Carrie Wise, and Yusef Salam were arrested, tried, convicted, and issued prison sentences 25 years ago for the assault and rape of Trisha Miley, the Central Park jogger. This case had national repercussions and is still affecting us today. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Lucy Stanton Day Sessions, 1831 to 1910. An abolitionist, author, and educator believed to be the first African-American woman to graduate from college, completing a ladies' literary course from Oberlin College in 1850. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1641-715-3660. Just press extension 549-032-POUND and then star 6 and 1 to queue up from the conference. Once again, I'm Max Clark. What's happening, Scotty? How you doing, brother? Well, greetings to you, Max, and greetings to the listeners. Looking forward to the listeners being able to hear um, George Malincrot, um, as you mentioned. It was uh, working in the very prison where Daryl Rainey was uh, murdered. Uh, boiled in a shower till his flesh fall, fell off the bones like, you know, somebody was cooking chicken, chicken dumplings or something. You know, just really disgusting that um, nobody is going to be uh, arrested, prosecuted, convicted, and sentenced to an appropriate um, punishment uh, for murder. And so, you know, hey, what I have to complain about, really, you know, in the big picture of things. So I'm looking forward to that. But again, you know, I noticed that some of the uh, stories we discussed hit the cutting room floor, so I'll use my opening remarks to uh, talk about that um, as we wait on Johanna uh, to call in, who's probably in transit from his uh, J-O-B, and he'll call in as soon as he's able, but he shared this story on on Facebook, on his social media page, and um, where he was talking about the the, uh, numbers are in. That in the state of Colorado, that they, the state, this is just the state. The state alone made 130, how many? I actually have that listed as one of our stories, Scotty. Oh, really? Well, I think that's a really important story because it intersects with other stories. And then again, I'm just really disgusted right now um, that the commander in chief did not do, I, I would literally say didn't lift a finger to bring relief to a whole bunch of people that's that's being trampled uh, by the criminal justice system by simply just ordering the DEA, uh, part of the executive branch, to declassify cannabis as one of the most dangerous drugs, which the science backs up, which the POTUS himself has has, uh, cited that science and saying it's no more dangerous than beer, but yet beer and alcohol is not on the DEA scheduled list. And that would bring a lot of relief to people that we reported on on this program. Um, and, 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 of course, you know, you, you're black, I'm black, Johannes black, and we do tend to view things through the lens of our community. And then, rightly so, because our community is suffering the most, although we do acknowledge other uh, um, ethnic, ethnic groups are suffering. As well, and but so we tend to view it uh, uh, through that through that lens. But 
it will also bring a lot of relief. And I suspect, you know, for those that where it's important, if you're trying to show racism or whatever, um, the remember we reported on the I estimated a half a million uh, U.S. veterans, you know, uh, um, close are, to a million. Well, it's over. It, it is a million. It's a million that's in jails and prison. But I estimated that 500,000 of them are in there for nonviolent drug convictions. Probably the bulk of those are probably, you know, uh, cannabis. And so he could bring immediate relief to them just by taking it off this list. Something that isn't even controversial, the American public. So, you know, and now we're getting from Colorado. We'll talk about uh, later in the program here in Colorado. They made a uh, uh, generated one hundred and thirty million dollars in tax revenue. Thirty five million of that going to the schools, even though, you know, that isn't such a strong number. And I would also like to crunch the other numbers and see, you know, what profit uh, did small business owners or anybody that's in the mirror, the cannabis business in Colorado. You know, what did they how many jobs did they create? So there's a lot of numbers to be crushed crunch but that is one of the main tools that the modern day slave catchers also known as police use to hem people up man so yeah yeah we're going to go into that in detail a little bit later too as i said it's one of our stories on our list i've had kind of an exciting uh time past couple of days a couple of things have happened one is uh i did my first international uh interview uh prison slavery and spoke with brothers uh, Richardson out at African News Network, our African News Television. And uh, it was a pretty interesting interview. We really got everything that we wanted to get out there. If you haven't seen it, I'll put it on the new abolitionist radio page. Very powerful. Please share it with other people. I, I was very proud of the fact that my first international interview was on an African network and not on CNN, Fox, or any of those. And I turned a few of those down. So I was very proud. And also, I spoke uh, briefly with Nation Inside just uh, yesterday. I reached out to them. You know, Nation Inside is uh, the oldest American magazine in the country. And they were started by an abolitionist in 1865. Hmm. And today, they have kind of a different mission. Their mission is, uh, as far as the short description, is a platform that connects and supports people who are building a movement to systematically challenge mass incarceration in the United States. The company overview is says they're a community of people dedicated to fighting mass incarceration, and their mission is to end mass incarceration. Well, I'm going to speak with them tomorrow personally uh, via phone call, and we're going to talk about abolition, possibly replacing that mission, just as it was intended to in the very beginning of their birth. And as an abolitionist, I'll be presenting that to them. That's great. That's great. So what time are, are we scheduled to have uh, George call in or we could jump into our first story if that's what's next? I, I asked George to give us a call about quarter after eight. Still in a couple of minutes. Okay, still about four minutes. All right. Yes. So, so anything else caught your eye? You know, this is a story I'm working on. Uh, let me just throw this out. This, well, it is connected to modern day slavery and human trafficking, considering who the focus of the story is going to be on that I'm researching. But I think that if not Hillary Clinton herself, if she had knowledge of it, uh, but if she did not, then one of her surrogates, I think, may have 
committed a federal crime in trying to bribe uh, Al Sharpton if what he told a a political uh, commentator slash reporter for CNN this morning and saying that uh, a Clinton ally did you know quoting Mr. Sharpton a Clinton ally offered uh, asked him what did he want in exchange uh, for his support for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Now, I, I, I'm not sure at this point, but I do uh, recall, and I'm not going to give away my leads, but I do recall some recent stories of this happening on the Republican side, and two people were actually charged. And this happened during the last election cycle, and, and their cases, you know, came to, unless they appeal to uh, some kind of conclusion uh, earlier this year. So I think that's a big story, man. That's a big story right there. You got, you know, uh, um, just more criminality from who I'm calling the grandmother since, you know, she's older now. But I, no, we'll just call her uh, the mother of modern incarceration because she was still a young woman, relatively young woman when she helped her husband birth, you know, all of that terrible legislation that uh, led to what Michelle Alexander calls mass incarceration, but also correctly states that this is uh, actually uh, slavery under the 13th Amendment. So, Yeah, this whole political arena thing, I, I'm trying to watch it from the outside and just looking at all craziness that's involved from the uh, Debbie, Debbie Wasserman Schultz sabotaging another member of the Democratic Party campaign continuously and uh, blatantly supporting one candidate over another. Uh, and of course, we documented like her connections to private prison slavery yeah. down there in Florida. And speaking of Florida, right. uh, we have our guest on the line, Mr. George uh, Malincrot, is it? That's yeah. right. I, I always tell people it kind of rhymes with sauerkraut. That's the, that's the closest <laughs> you can go. <laughs> How are you guys hey, doing tonight? To welcome, welcome. Thank back you. To Radio, George. We've been looking forward to hearing from you again. Uh, we've been concerned with the plight, of course, uh, over the past year uh, involved in trying to bring this thing to light. We were talking about you last week and imagining, you know, what you must be going through. Uh, I'm sure they're following you by now in your own industry. Uh, and they banned your book in Florida's prison, saying that it could potentially start a riot, <laughs> which I believe may be correct, you know? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Um, and uh, I've got some news I want to share um, tonight for the first time, and that is I just heard from an attorney for the ACLU, and my second edition has been banned as well. I just got that news today, so everybody's hearing it for the first time tonight. Does it sound like the Yeah, does it sound like the ACLU? Why are they contacting you, dude? They the uh plan on or exploring defending uh your first amendment speech rights yes absolutely that's in the works now and uh they wrote a letter on my behalf uh last month to request that uh my book be allowed and uh that's that's the news i just shared tonight is that i heard the second edition is banned as well so they're going to have a meeting uh, between their attorneys to determine uh, what the next step is uh, to go forward or not. And I said, well, I'm all in favor of going forward. Um, so we'll see how that unfolds. 
Yeah, yeah. And I was just talking about the ACLU, but, you know, I think we should also point out to the listening audience that you are not a sole, a lone victim of First Amendment uh, speech rights being violated uh, by having books banned from prison. Because, you know, um, uh, Political Prisoner Radio, through that, I learned there are all kind of books, like Soledad Brothers, you know, uh, uh, written by George Jackson, his prison letters. Uh, those are banned out in California, probably, you know, across this United, United States. But again, this just shows the blatant disregard for, you know, the quote unquote law of the land, uh, the most sacred U.S. Constitution. And, and it's just a shame, you know, that more people aren't outraged. But it's good to hear the ACLU uh, is picking up your case. Absolutely. And uh, they uh, they were on a case with uh, Prison Legal News which is a, a magazine, and uh, I heard that they lost the case, and, and prison legal news is still banned in Florida. So it's, it's difficult to win these cases, but, you know, I'm looking forward to, uh, to being uh, named uh, a plaintiff against the Florida Department of Corrections. I mean, I've, I've been a thorn in their side, and I hope to continue to be one uh, until they start to institute some real changes. Yeah, I'm very bothered by the results that are concluding with the whole case of Darren Rainey, which uh, brought you into this position you are right now, just being a witness, uh, being there when this man's life was taken, brutally taken. And uh, I'm, I'm reading now the article that they put out where they're saying, you know, there was no thermal injuries or burns on his body. They're suspending the investigation at this point. Uh, and they mentioned about how the officers uh, were taunting people, were cleaning up this man's skin who had been boiled off. Uh, an amazing story happening in Florida, the home of Debbie Washington Schultz, congressman and head of the DNC, who just endorsed recently CCA. Why would the head of the DNC endorse a private prison is beyond me. Why is the DNC having a convention at uh, the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia, you know, <laughs> and they're going to play up, oh, the Liberty Bell and, and, you know, Philadelphia, first capital and all of this and that. Uh, but at, at the same time, Wells Fargo is the second largest, largest investor in the GEO group. So, you know, there's always those connections, man. Yeah. Hey, George, you not too long ago. You were participating in a, uh, I believe it was, you were testifying a con- before Congress in Florida. Am I wrong? Well, yes, that was uh, last January, January 2015. I was invited by the uh, chair of the Criminal Justice Committee to present before them. And, uh, you know, I, I painted a, a, a pretty uh, negative picture of the DOC. And, um, uh, I, I, <laughs> there's no reason that picture has changed. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, everybody pointed to 2014 and the record number of deaths in the Florida prison system, which was at 346, 346. We've exceeded that by eight more people in 2015. So, uh, there, you know, I don't know what's going on out there, but uh, from the people I know, 
who've contacted me, who have loved ones around the state, and we're talking as as far away as, as Pensacola and as far south as Dade, I mean, all over, they're telling me that there's uh, a culture of brutality and just outright disrespect. And, you know, when officers treat these men and women with disrespect, they shouldn't be shocked that um, assaults on officers are up. And this is one of the, the major things that I think that Secretary uh, Julie Jones, that's the uh, Florida Department of Corrections Secretary Julie Jones, is not pointing out. I mean, she has been glossing over too many things. Um, and, and so she, she points to the increase in inmate on officer violence as a reason to uh, get more officers in there. But and which is, I I would admit would probably uh, be be positive. Except I'm wondering if these new officers won't be influenced by this culture of brutality, and in a sense, it would just be like reloading the gun. Right, right. We've yeah. had uh, former prison guards come on just recently who were told us about this type of culture and environment where new recruits are literally showing the ropes on how to not only uh, incite prisoners in order to be able to put them in the hole or mete out punishment or add time to uh, their their sentences, but how to do it just out of pure spite. If you just want to see somebody get riled up, they do this as sort of a, a, a cool game. But you know, Absolutely. For, us, for us here at New Abolitionist Radio, we see this much clearer because our perspective sees this as an act of slavery and human trafficking, the continuation of human beings for sale, put in the cages, and sold on the open market through these stocks and bonds that you can buy through prison industry. So that's how we're looking at it. Not as something that can be reformed, but an ongoing crime that needs to end. Right, right. Um, I, I agree with you on on that because these, these prison companies, they amass live bodies for profit. They're collecting live bodies for profit. And our legislators are not in a hurry to put a stop to this. Um, just for the uh, listeners, I know you've been on the program before, but uh, again, um, just uh, for posterity, uh, Mr. Mallinckrodt, you do uh, view yourself as an abolitionist. Is, is that not correct? Absolutely. You signed me up last time, and I completely agree with you guys. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's such a shift in perspective that is so drastic. I don't think people who are looking towards reform understand. When you look at this as a criminal act, it changes how you view it in every way and how you react to it. But if you continue to think that this is something that can be fixed with a few uh tweaks here and there throughout the justice system, then you're completely wrong. That's like, uh, you know, trying to reform slavery, which is what we're facing. And you know you can't reform slavery. You might as well try to reform murder. You have a better chance of genocide. Now, Mr. Mel yeah. Cry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is um, I have a solution to eliminate the culture of brutality, not only in Florida, but potentially in other uh, prison systems around the United States, and that is simply to take the grievance process away 
from the Department of Corrections and have a completely independent body administer the grievance process. And here's what's happening in Florida, uh, and you guys know this as well. Um, inmates are reluctant to write up a guard for fear of retaliation. And if they knew that their grievances would be completely confidential, um, we would we would see the truth come out. We would see contraband rings exposed, fight rings exposed, uh, brutality exposed. Uh, we would see uh, these people for, for what they are. But in addition to a grievance, what I would also like to have um, is what I call the personnel appreciation form. In other words, we want to know who the good people are, too. And you know right. what? Let's let's reward the good guards, the good administrators who are dedicated professionals that deserve our respect. I mean, the, the, the job of a prison guard is, is a very difficult job. And for the people that are performing it well and they go in every day and they do their best, Man, I, I salute you guys. If any of you are out there listening, you have my respect. But for the psychopaths and the people that support them and cover up their crimes, I'm coming after you. I got no respect for you. That's, that's what I got to say. And you know what's funny is uh, Secretary Julie Jones, uh, we're back in Florida, she pointed out that oh, well, our office gets 60,000 grievances a year. Okay, here's the math on that. Even if we assume that 60 to 70% of all inmates are illiterate, those are basically the numbers, that leaves 30 to 40,000 inmates a year who are only writing two grievances on average. That's an insult to anybody's intelligence. And I believe that if inmates knew they could not be retaliated against, mm. we'd see 60,000 grievances in a week. Wow. Right, right. Because right now you've got the foxes running the chicken coop, and whenever the chickens complain, they complain to another fox. Who takes it back to the fox coalition? And that's not how it should work out. We should certainly have an independent uh, group to decide about these things and look into them. And I also like the idea about finding out who the good guys are as well. Now, Mr. Um, Mr. Malin Crott, um, I, I want to turn people and, and point our listeners to the book Getting Away with Murder, a true uh, story. Is that the, the entitled title, title of the story, Getting Away with Murder, uh, a true story? That is correct. And, and that, that story is about my nearly three years that I worked in that Florida State prison psychiatric ward and um it you know basically it'll it'll open your eyes to what's going on uh for people who are suffering from severe mental illness and how poorly we treat them in our prison system not just in florida but this is nationwide and we're, we're seeing more and more press coming out where we're literally we're, we're torturing these people and, you know, when you think about it, in the Middle Ages, uh, the mentally ill were rounded up. They were thrown into prisons where they were basically beaten, tortured, and killed. And, and I asked the question, what's changed? Yeah, let me give the listeners a visual. 
um, for those that, you know, watch popular television and, and whatnot. It kind of reminded me of the series American Horror Story, uh, where the series where they were in this asylum. Um, I, I don't know if either of you are, are aware of that series it comes on cable. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was like, I'm like saying the same thing you're saying. What's the difference? The way that you, you're, you're treating these people and the neglect and the abuse and the, and the killing, you know, and right. wow. And it's playing out all across. And it is, in fact, uh, in violations of treaties, uh, human, international human rights treaties that the United States has signed or ratify but refuse to implement and we just and, and this reminds me Mr. Mallinckrodt I wish it I had advanced knowledge I would have loved for you to have given a testimony and evidence to the recent uh, United Nations panel that came here uh, that uh, was taking testimony uh, it, it, it has something to do with the uh, decade for African descent and they were coming here doing a fact-finding mission on racism in the United States. And obviously they were looking at policing and they were looking at the prison systems and, and whatnot. And they did like a four-city tour, I believe. And But it has been completed. But they were going around, you know, like just taking uh, evidence from different groups, from individuals. Um, we did a, a program on, on a, another program on this station that covers, you know, human rights issues. Um, where we had some people come on who had testified in Baltimore, you know, and gave information, professionals like yourself and, and whatnot. Right. So I would have loved for you to have, um, you know, uh, your even just your book being presented to them. But I'm just now thinking about it. But um, yeah, I believe they, they did go to Florida too, and they took yeah, I think they Florida. did. Wow. Yeah, so okay. they took testimony from the young man who had been uh, stopped and frisked over 200 times in a single year for going to his own job. On his job, almost every day, they would come in, stop him, frisk him. He had over 80 charges for trespassing on his job. That was and Miami it, Gardens Police. Right, Miami Gardens Police. And you know you know who works there? Roland Clark, one of the guys who put Darren Rainey in the shower. Wow. See? No wonder. Uh, yeah, no, no wonder. Yeah, it's just it's, the brutality is with you all the time. When you think like that, when that's your mentality, the uh, slave catcher's mentality, you carry it with you everywhere you go and see everybody the same way. Um, I would like to read a small part of what happened with Darren Rainey's case recently and then ask you, George, where do we go from here now? Well, before you okay. do that, Max, before you do that, because that would be a good segue, but I do want to ask Mr. Mallinckrodt, as a, a mental health care professional, about what what are your thoughts on, uh, and I know you worked in the Florida uh, prison system, but what are your thoughts on President Obama's executive action to uh, stop using solitary confinement on just juveniles? And I did the research, there's less than 40 uh, juveniles even in federal prisons. Um, 45. 45. 40, yeah. So, I mean, what are your thoughts as a healthcare uh, professional, because I would say that that doesn't nearly go far enough. And what difference does it make if it's a, a adolescent or teenager or young person or an adult? I mean, the impact is still the same, isn't it? Well, well, a actually, for a juvenile, it's more severe because uh, their brains are still in flux. They're still growing. 
Um, they're not as solid, psychologically speaking, as an adult. So uh, to throw uh, a juvenile into solitary is, is just contraindicated. There's no way that that should happen. Uh, there's got to be other ways to uh, quell a disturbance or, you know, calm people down than, than to go to, to solitary. But the problem with, with and, and I agree, Oh, that's a nice first step, let's say. But so many of people who are suffering from severe mental illness that are in prison are just routinely thrown into solitary. Number one, guards for the most part can't recognize the difference between a standard behavioral outburst and a psychotic episode. So we've got to train the guards better to see the difference so that we keep the mentally ill, the, the people that are suffering from severe mental illness, out of solitary. It's most definitely contraindicated. And it's and for the general population, it's overused. And it's I, I think I saw... Yeah, I think I saw a figure that there's something like 80,000 people in solitary, uh, yeah. you know, which it also generates more profits because it costs more to keep an inmate in solitary. So I'm sure there's a profit factor, perhaps driving it. Who knows? I can't almost say. Almost 30000 per year. It's almost $30,000 a year more for the person in solitary. Seems like that could be an administrative decision and the guards are carrying it out. Well, and, and so what's happening in Florida, when somebody goes into solitary, these are where most of the suspicious deaths have occurred. Uh, for example, this uh, young woman, uh, Latondra Ellington, she was at Lowell Correctional Institution, and that's the largest women's prison in the United States. She complained to a relative that this sergeant was out for her and was going to kill her. So they put her into what's called protective management, which is just another form of restricted housing or solitary. And the next morning, she turns up dead. Okay, this is a healthy young woman, a 36-year-old woman with four children. You see, that is, when, when those, when those men and women are isolated in solitary in Florida, and this could well be nationwide, they are at risk for abuse from the guards. Yeah, you're afraid, as you said in the beginning, you're afraid to even say anything, uh, fill out any forms, and when she said that, look what happened to her. And what the people know she said that within the prison, so they're right. much more reluctant to ever say anything because they'll say, you know what, the last person said something died, literally got yeah. killed. Yeah. And there's a little here, of, uh, there's a, here's there's a quick story. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let me make a quick point about Latondra um, because this also relates to Darren Rainey's case in a way. Um, the local county medical examiner found no visible signs of trauma, but her family got their own independent medical examiner who found abdominal trauma consistent with either being punched or killed. Hmm. And how that relates to Darren Rainey is that our local Dade medical examiner came back with this ridiculous finding of accidental death. I, I just have a feeling that when an ME 
gets a criminal on their slab, they just don't do a good job. You know, it, it's not like it's a celebrity. How about I mean, participating like in a cover-up? How about participating in a cover-up? I mean, regardless of the classification or the label that has been thrown in somebody in prison, you know, you want to call them a felon, a criminal, whatever you want to call it, that's still a human being. And as a professional, you your job is to determine the facts, not to assist in, in cover-ups. Or And then I've also heard that in some states, all you need is a high school diploma to be a medical examiner. No special training whatsoever, you know. And, 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 and so, you know, um, I, I just think that, you know, all of this, it's all of the above. Incompetence. Uh, um, uh, apathy, uh, as well as criminal conspiracy. That's just my opinion from the evidence that I've seen over the years. Just no way you can determine, like you were saying, it's ridiculous to say that Mr. Rainey's death was, did you say accidental? How? <laughs> yeah, you know, and. Did he lock himself in the shower? Huh? You know, I mean, what are they going to say? Well, it was. Uh, spa day for the inmates and we had Rainey in the steam room and he was going to get a massage and a facial afterward but oh my goodness we left him in too long whoops come on you know it I is, mean we're uh, it, it just angers me there's a list that came out of 346 deaths in Florida prison in 2014 uh, and it's only getting worse we keep telling people you're counting all the police killing you but you're not counting the guards Make sense. 
Um, you know, and, and so many other things didn't make sense either. I mean, they, they talked about, oh, his skin came off in warm, moist conditions. Warm, moist conditions. It was, it was nearly boiling. And I told, you know, I told the medical examiner, oh, I told her, yeah. you know, I use the water. I, I work there. And literally, you could not wash your hands under the hot water without burning them within seconds. It was that hot. And I, I, I tried to fill her in on what was happening, but it seems like she totally ignored me and didn't interview anybody who worked in the unit who could have also testified to how brutal the conditions were. But she, it, it looked like they just ended up believing the guard story. And the guards, in my experience, always slanted their incident reports in their favor. I mean, basically, uh, they were just out-and-out fiction. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just, it irks me that, that these, this medical examiner would believe these guards. I, I mean, it's, we've got a, 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 an article that just came out recently. Uh, suggesting it was a cover-up. That's what I was saying, Mr. Mallinckrodt. I mean, we have patterns and practices. That's what the Justice Department, you know, calls things where you determine patterns and practice. And so these are patterns and practice seen all across this this nation. And so just like people readily acknowledge the blue wall of silence among police officers and whatnot, earlier y'all were talking about among guards and I'm telling you, it extends to the prosecution. Here in North Carolina, the uh, uh, um, former SBI uh, technician, he wasn't like a mortician, I mean, excuse me, not a mortician, but a medical examiner, but he did the drug testing and testing, you know, substances, whether they were blood or not and things like that, uh, drug, t- um, um, no, crime scene processing, okay, yeah. Um, so anyway... Uh, he he was falsifying some of those results. Some of the stuff was like, you know, he found ketchup in the vehicle, but he put in the report it was blood. And there was even collusion with investigators to frame people. And yet this man was just allowed to retire. What's that? I think Johanna might have joined us. Is he here yet? Um, He hasn't hit star six and one yet, so I can't identify. I don't know. We got a lot of people dialed in, so... Johanan, if you in there, hit star six and one to comment on air. We uh, also invite listeners uh, call in at 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549-032-POUND. Hit star six and one to comment on air. Uh, but but this is pattern and practice, Mr. Mallinckrodt, from, from my research over the five years I've really been involved in it. Yes, I, I agree. Go ahead. I would wonder how could uh, anybody do something like this and get away with it? Well, a perfect example, fully done on video, would be Natasha McKenna, who was uh, this small black woman in jail who was uh, tased while restrained in a chair and uh, brutalized until she died. And it's all on video. You can see these good people supposedly just doing their job where the outcome results in the death of this woman. And that happens all across America every day. Yeah, uh, I mean that's that's just so brutal uh, and and completely unnecessary. Um, you, you know, it, it 
it's got to stop somewhere or the start of something good has to start somewhere as well. And, you know, that's, that's a part of what I see as my mission now is to, uh, first of all, educate the public, get the word out that these horrific things are happening behind the prison fence, and then reach out to legislators um, for a number of reasons. One of the the primary re- uh, uh, things that I'm focused on since I am a psychotherapist and a mental health professional is to end mass incarceration of those suffering from severe mental illness. And that's a 17% of the total population in our jails and prisons nationwide. And President Obama has, uh, you know, he stepped up, he's shining a light on mass incarceration, but I don't think he goes far enough because he's not including the mentally ill in a significant way. And, um, go ahead. He's lighting a match in a completely dark room, but we need a spotlight. We need a spotlight. Your honey has joined us, and uh, we'll just take our next break at the top of the hour. Uh, Go ahead and continue, uh, as you were saying there, George. Well, so the way I see um, the the best possible way to uh, end mass incarceration of the severely mentally ill is to start at the source. And the source is our children, adolescents, and young adults. And we simply do not have enough community mental health resources to treat people that are suffering from mental illness. And I have experience working on the front lines in the school system as well. I worked for a specialized agency that provided services for severely emotionally disturbed and emotionally handicapped middle school children. Uh, these were children that were bipolar. Um, in fact, I had a 12-year-old girl on my caseload that had been taking psych meds for three years uh, for schizophrenia. And I, I, before I was in that program, I didn't even think people that young could get that. But, you know, it's rare, but they can. And the, the point I'm making here is when we provide this type of service in our school system, we provide a mental health safety net for our children. Uh, to do otherwise is, is to abandon our children and leave them to uh, a hodgepodge uh, collection of, of potential treatment sources in the community where, quite frankly, most people just end up going untreated. And, you know, when we can treat a child early, that's the equivalent of, say, a woman who finds a small lump in her breast. That's the time to treat breast cancer, not when it's stage four, okay? And so what's happening now is we have people that have been untreated for mental illness for years, and then when they're having a psychotic episode or or an acute mental uh, episode, uh, then we move in and we, we try to treat them, but the outcomes are really horrible. That's like stage four breast cancer. We've got to get to people earlier 
and cut off the supply line to our prisons and jails. Um, let me uh, do a, a quick check right quick. Uh, area code 267, who do we have on the line? Hello, how are you? Hi, okay. I, I guess that wasn't Johannes' line, but caller, um, please go ahead with your question or comment. Okay, um, first I wanted to say hello to George. My name is Flojo Mason. How are you? Hi, everybody hey. on the panel. Hey, hey. Flojo. How you been? Um, I had to chime in a little bit um, about this situation. Um, first of all, I it's a problem. It's a problem to the fact that it's not just happening to people who are mentally ill. Our government and so many of these so-called judges and police officers who are out here, who are black, who sit up there and turn their back on their own people, talking about they got in the criminal justice system to change the situation. But once they get in there, they become blue and forget about their own damn people. That's the problem with the whole situation. That's where it starts from. Because in these court systems and in these courtrooms, this government is setting up people to have them psychologically evaluated and claim them as mentally incompetent so they can subject them to prison without having a trial, without having the benefit of proper uh, legal representation. Whereas though the so-called public offenders or the state board attorneys are arresting the case and not properly defending these people in these courtrooms. Um, I've been a victim of police brutality, myself and my children, and subjected to jail and the judges and people of my own color who sit up there and look like me, who sit up there and don't do law whatsoever. And I had the, I mean, just being, just sadness of being in a prison and finding a woman that was arrested who was deaf and dumb, what they were called deaf and dumb, in prison for two years for stealing the candy bar because she was hungry and lost from her family. And nobody tried to sit, and they put a bail on her of $250,000. Those are the type of situations that happen. Excuse me? Um, no, which, I think that's extreme. Yes, I mean, but it's it's part of pattern and practice. Like uh, she said, this is happening to more than just people that's mentally ill. It's happening to everybody. It's not just happening to adults, not just happening to men. It's happening to women. We report on these stories. It's happening to juveniles. It's just, it's just, I mean, you, it, to me, now I, know, I understand why some of the uh, prison former Prison guards, plantation overseers who uh, listen to this program and have called in. I see why they quit. Because it, if you got any kind of conscience, any kind of empathy for other human beings, let alone empathy for someone who looks like you, and you don't have that, I mean, you can't work in a place like that. You know, you you just really can't. You can't. And and the thing about it is, and what, what makes me angry is that when they, there's a lot of guards, you can't say... I, and I hear George and he said that, you know, these people have to be properly trained. That's one. That's true. There's guards who don't want to be trained. They know who these people are and they pick them up. I've seen a female guard who was over six foot tall. I mean, darn near six foot, real tall, big woman, set up there and would constantly beat on a young girl 
who had mental issues that was way shorter than her. And every time you turn around, the girl, you know, she had a little speech impairment, whatever. Get away from her. I'm going to fuck her up. That was the guard word. Female guard. And one, I had, I had, I stood there at her and she's like, I don't know what this one looking at me for like that, but she could come on with it. I said, you know what? I'm not like her, but if you come and you touch her this day, I'm going, I'm going in the hole. You could take me in the hole. You're going to need your whole crew of people in there. I wrote paperwork while I was in prison to get other prisoners out. And one of the paperwork that I wrote was for this young lady that was deaf and dumb who lost her family that had her bail over 250000 When they found out that I was writing the paperwork, she and I both got out and they put her in a mental institution in, Phil- in Norristown so that I could not find her. Mm-hmm. Well, so you- I don't know where the girl is or what happened to her. And my heart feels heavy about it because it troubles me every day. Because I, I know she's it does. out there. She's lost. Yeah. Whatever. So you got empathy. You got empathy for other human beings. But we do have some more callers, and we want to try to get uh, uh, our other co-hosts in here, too. But I'm glad, uh, sister, that you survived uh, that situation. And I don't know how you view the system, whether you call it mass incarceration or a continuation of slavery. But if you never read the 13th Amendment, go read the 13th Amendment and you will be enlightened to the fact that slavery was never abolished. But we want to thank you, you know, for calling in and sharing your story because we want to get these sort of stories out there in the limited amount of time that we have. So thank you for calling in. We hope that you'll call back and, um, you know, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, I I put a series of videos and articles up of brutality within the prisons that are happening recently, all caught on video where everybody can see. And my concern is that both the major companies, GEO Group and CCA, are now moving into the uh, uh, mentally ill arena where they're working uh, with, uh, they're providing services for the mentally ill. So they're branching out to take over these areas mm-hmm. and to provide these services. And they're still the same company. <laughs> right. So that's 17% you mentioned, George. It's 17% of their product line that they're not willing to lose. So they're opening up new arenas where they can just move you from their prison to their brand new mental health facility. Uh, do, we have your, go the same thing. do we have Johanan on a uh, mic open? Is that you, Johanan? Okay, uh, that's not Johanna. Uh, the person who called in from Anonymous, uh, did you have a question or a comment that you would like to share with us? I no, would, is that me? Yes, that's that's you. Yep. That's you. That's me. Okay. Hey, George, this is Paul Specker. Hi. Um, oh, hey, Paul. Yeah, you know who I am. I'm a nurse. I worked in a prison. Here in California, I had been working in a mental health uh, facility, large one, before that, and I thought I was going to be going in there and taking care of mental health patients. Instead, I walked into a torture chamber, uh, mm. approximately 83, almost entirely black, uh, with some Hispanics in there being uh, tortured by uh, entirely white uh, torturers. Uh, I objected to it, of course, and still in the fight. Hold on, let me let me repeat that for our listeners that just uh, may not forget what was just said here. You are a nurse working Correct. in the prison. And I in worked the prison, in the prison. Right. 
and you witness a primarily black prison population being abused by primarily white prison guards. 100% white. 100% white. Hmm. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. We appreciate your testimony. Thank you. Did you have anything further you wanted to share with us? Oh, sir? sure. Well, I'll share some things with you. Um, let me let me tell you something to look out for. Um, it's a pattern. It's called abduction, beating, head injury, isolation, drugging, death, uh, i.e. Sandra Bland. It happens all the time. We used to see it. I used to see it a lot. We uh, and my my other the other nurses that were uh, with me also protesting it. We saw this pattern a lot. And, of course, when we saw it with Sandra Bland, we recognized it immediately. So if anyone out there has any doubts as to what happened to Sandra Bland, she was murdered. Okay, it started with the, the crazy abduction, and it just continues. The uh, plastic bag is a well-known prison trick for killing people. It really pissed me off that um, they allowed that. In my prison, uh, which my situation came well before Sandra Bland, it was routine for autopsies to uh, conclude that somebody who had died um, been murdered, basically, was uh, a suicide. Um, they're not suicides. I don't think any of them were suicides. Uh, these were all murders. The uh, drugs in Sandra Bland's case apparently was a massive overdose with THC, but uh, I'm not sure how accurate the uh, lab tests were. What I saw was massive over overdoses with gabapentin and other psych drugs. Uh, not just Nobody in history has ever overdosed off THC. Which is cannabis for people don't know what he's talking exactly. about, or weed or pot. Yeah. Exactly. They might have felt that it made it uh, easier to blame her for her own suicide. Well, they did the same thing in um, Trayvon Martin's case. Yes. Pattern in practice. Yes. You know, demonize the victim. Yeah, absolutely. Abduction, beating, head injury, isolation, drugging, death. Mm. Um, it's a pattern I've seen over and over again. Um, the plastic bag is also uh, pretty routine. They're so common, and as long as you're wearing gloves to, to pull it out of the bag, it's got no fingerprints on it, nothing. Um, and it's very effective. It leaves no other marks, and it looks exactly like somebody hung themselves. Mm -hmm. See, this, this is what we're talking about when we say we have one of the largest archives of testimony, evidence to prove what we're saying. These are people who witnessed these things firsthand. Mind you, that are speaking right now, uh, George, and what was your name, brother? My name's Paul Spector. Paul and Paul Spector. They're involved in the system. They've seen it with their own eyes. Who are you going to listen to? Right. Um, we have uh, about one more minute left, and we're going to uh, take our station identification break. Uh, but also, um, we need to get ready to wrap up this segment with, with George. We certainly appreciate him coming on, sharing his time with us, and giving his testimony into the callers who have called in. Uh, thus far, and then we will jump to uh, the second portion of the program. So, uh, Max, did you have anything? Uh, um, first, listener, did did you have anything else to share? And I hope that you will tell people about New Abolitionist Radio and invite them to listen in and and some of those other nurses to call in and get their uh, uh, testimony. As we, as Max stated, you know, this is for the public record. We archive it. Um. All I can say is that a lot of this is monetary-based, and there's not going to be any justice coming from the courts. It's all uh, code of silence. The officers are completely protected. They're making a lot of money on it. And 
breaking the law is nothing to them. They laugh at, at our legal system. They're, they feel they're above it. Well, thank you for sharing. And you, ha you have a good night. Thank you. Thanks, so, so our listeners, make sure that you go to New Abolitionist Radio right now and pick up the book, Getting Away with Murder, A True Story. Not only is this book going to open up your eyes to what's happening within these prison walls and how our people are dying behind institutional racism, prison process, and just lack of any concern for human life. But it will also help George continue his fight. And after what he's been facing, he needs all the help we can get. So abolitionists, come together and get this book. George, is there anything you would like to leave us with this evening? And I, I certainly appreciate you being here again. And I'm looking forward to you being here later on because this fight is not over. We're continuing. Right. It's, it's not uh, over by a long shot. And I just want to give a quick shout out to um, a man who was on the inside. He was once in my unit uh, who wouldn't give up from inside the Florida Department of Corrections in trying to get Darren Rainey justice. And his name is Harold Hempstead. He's been called the caged crusader down here in Florida. He wrote over 90 grievances, which touches on my point about grievances again, that were completely ignored by the Florida Department of Corrections. It was only when his sister contacted an editor in the Miami Herald that they did the first story that featured uh, Harold Hempstead's account of uh, Darren Rainey's death and what happened in the unit. And I stepped forward publicly in that second story. But I've got to give Harold a tremendous amount of credit because, you know, in the Florida Department of Corrections, they'll, they'll have you killed. And honestly, I still don't think he's safe, even though uh, this publicity has protected him somewhat. And if, her, if it were up to me... Uh, I'd rather see him uh, do his time in a federal prison. Um, they're known to be a little bit safer. And uh, But anyway, I just wanted to do a quick shout out there and, and give him a lot of credit. And I acknowledge his courage for coming forward the way he did. Well, thank, thank you, George. And uh, we look forward to getting updates uh, from you uh, about your uh, freedom of speech case that the ACLU seems to be interested in uh, helping you pursue. I'll, I'll keep you in the loop, for sure. All right, you have a good night. All right, it's great to be on again, guys. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio, and you ain't going to get this information like this from nowhere else. We'll be right back. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasts and live program scheduling. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Hey, so welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, before I get into our first story. We do uh, have another caller. That's what I was going to check. Yep. Area code 561. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Hey, fellas, what's going on? Greetings, greetings to you. Who we talking to? Uh, uh, my name is Seneca Delancey. You know, I'm from the uh, from the Florida area. I uh, I, I know I caught the last end of that segment, man, but 
I was trying to get in. I, I experienced that on three separate occasions. And, man, that Florida Department of Corrections, man, it's, 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 it's hell, brother. It's, it's, it's really hell. And thanks to y'all, I used to think it was something else, but thanks to you guys and, and, and Brother Gus and other fellas, I understand that it's slavery all over again. I used to, the, the, the thing that the, uh, the other guy was saying about the, uh, how they kill us, like the methods that they use, the steps, all that's true. They play mental games with you. They take your game time and stuff like that. The beating still go on, but it's a mental warfare where they, uh, it's something, man. And it, 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 it's almost comical because you watch brothers throughout the day break down. It's like you can see them with the point that they break down. And once you break down, it's like, it's either you snap and go crazy or you just withdraw inside yourself. It's, it's, it's wild, man. All up and down floor, everywhere in Florida, but especially in that, that panhandle area, man, them clampers, man, is, is, woof. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a crazy thing, but I, I just wanted to, to get that in, man. I, I wanted to get it earlier, like I said, but too slow, man. Well, we have, uh, uh, certainly a huge lineup tonight of interesting stories that may hold your attention, but please hang on. And I'd also like to say, brothers, uh, it makes my heart swell. Uh, first thing when I hear someone say because that's what we're trying to do is just get the right perspective out there so it changes yeah. everything you think about it and when you say what you said man I just uh, uh, reinforce the fact that what we're doing is so important here and you know one of the worst things yeah. that could happen to a human being is to be a slaver and not even know you're a slave and not know you're a right on both levels I don't think that would make even a, a and to be the enslaver and not know you're an enslaver. But I don't think that will make a difference because if they engaged in crimes against humanity, just because they don't view it as slavery, they, they know what they're doing is still criminal and, and and whatnot, or there wouldn't be attempts to cover it up. So you know they're right. already committing crimes against humanity. So what's the you know what's another one? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Me, Scotty, I don't, I don't feel as though that they feel they are committing crimes. You don't, because there's no way as a human being you can continually not just only do things, but on the other side, watch things go on, and you say certain things, but it's, it's, it, don't, it don't come from a black perspective. It don't, it don't come from from our hearts, like like, like brother was just saying, and make it well up inside. They don't come. To me, all these people think about is structure and dominance. Structure and dominance. And what did uh, King say? They're more concerned with order than justice. Right. Right. They want you to walk in a straight line. Period. They don't care about nothing. They broke down, hurt. They don't care about none of that. They want order. They want your hands down. They want speaking in, uh, about prison, but I guess you were related to to life as well, even at work. You you free, but how free are you? What what really can you do? Right. So, exactly. Exactly. Uh, God bless, brother. And uh, it's all all we really can hope at this point, as we're fighting this fight, is that you and others like you survive. That you get through this a lot. That we don't think we're losing. And also, no, it's a, a more of us, you know, they do care. And, and we know the mainstream media don't cover it, but, you know, there are us who use alternative uh, media uh, to, to get to the people and, and let them know what's going on. And so we are seeing the abolitionist movement grow. And so just know that y'all not in this alone, you know, that people are out here fighting. 
I got to get Thank you for calling in, man. No problem. Anytime I can, I will continue to call in. And like I said, I appreciate you. Y'all have a good night. All right. Well, where does these perspectives come from? That leads into our first story. And I just Max, one more time. I, I have to so say something right quick. Uh, Johannes still yeah. hasn't joined us, but I got a situation I need to take care of. So if you can uh, handle this next story, and I will rejoin you. Yeah. Right, right. As long as I'm on, I'm cool. <laughs> This leads into how these uh, these schools of thought occur. Well, uh, our first story says Georgia congressman told to apologize for defending slavery. And there's two articles that I'm going to read from, so you'll have to check them on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook in real time, so you can read them along with me. But it says members of the Georgia Assembly are taking the task. Comments made by a member of the lower house after the Civil War and slavery, uh, about Civil War and slavery, and the Ku Klux Klan. Georgia State Representative. Tommy Benson defended the Ku Klux Klan and the South in the Civil War area, but he doubled down in a recent interview with Atlanta television station WSB, where he explained his idea of why states left the Union. The southern states seceded because the North was advocating doing away with slavery, but they offered no idea as to what the South would do with the loss of $2 billion worth of property, per se. The property he described was in reference to slaves. Benton also defended the KKK by saying it wasn't based on race, but members were more like vigilantes, and it made a lot of people straighten up. He then suggests that people who have a tough time accepting the idea of slavery haven't really studied the subject. And I understand that African Americans, for the most part, have a problem with slavery issue, he said, but they don't denounce their ancestors in Africa who were selling slaves. Then Denton states African Americans don't understand because they have not been taught a true history of the war. Denton's comments have prompted members of the Georgia legislature to express outrage and demand a retraction and apology. So that's the first story. We, I the don't think we got Johanan on the line. Is that you, Johanan? Area code nine one three. Is that not Johanna? Okay. It is. Peace, 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 Johanna. Sound like you're on the road, brother. <laughs> Man, I didn't. It's been nothing too long ago. I left, but I was able to catch the last. Um, oh, I guess probably ten, fifteen minutes of the interview with George. Sister called in and gave her testimony about her time in, incarcerated as well. So sad to hear. You know that there's really no progress in that story as far as with Darren Rainey. But good to hear that George is definitely galvanized. He sounded like a different man from the first time he came on as a guest. Um, his eyes definitely wide open now. And being a victim, as he has become a victim of the struggle uh, for justice and the personal attacks that have come against him, I'm just uh, glad that he's still in the fight and still holding on with everything he's got. Um, but it's definitely interesting to hear the change, you know, just even in his voice uh, from the guy that he was to now a couple years later to, to what they've turned him into. And I think he's definitely a hardened soldier now and, and ready for the battle that we get, that we got to continue to fight. So. Word. Well, I was just putting out the story here of how these types of mentality come into being to our lawmakers who make these freaking laws like the Black Code, 
uh, that right. continually imprison us. People like Hillary Clinton and a Bill Clinton, for instance. Well, this Georgia state lawmaker is also uh, behind a bill uh, that is Tommy Benton, a Republican, is backing two pieces of legislation that would protect the Confederate memorial at Stone Mountain and formally recognize General Robert E. Lee's birthday and Confederate Memorial Day. He says the bills are a direct response to Senate Bill 294, which would forbid the state from formally recognizing holidays in honor of the Confederacy or its leaders. The Atlanta Journal Constitution reported Friday. Mr. Bill Benton called that bill cultural terrorism, and its sponsor, Senator Vincent Ford, for a fanatic. That's no better. Uh, excuse me, my thing just flashed away from the story here for a second. So let me get back to it. Uh, it says, uh, that's no better than what ISIS is doing, destroying museums and monuments. He's told the journal Constitution referring to the terror group by the acronym. I feel, feel very strongly about this. I think it has gone far enough. There is some idea out there that certain parts of history out there don't matter anymore, and that it's a bunch of bunk. Mr. Fort defended his bill saying the government shouldn't be involved in formally recognizing people who were slave owners or fought to protect slavery. For him to degenerate into that kind of name calling is beneath the response from me, he said of Mr. Benton. That kind of hyperbole does not allow for anything approaching a debate. Okay, as far as I want to go in that story, the hell with a debate. This is a lawmaker, people. He's a racist, white supremacist in Congress. Just like that mayor of Maine that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, who are running around with these types of ideals and philosophies in their head, where they're celebrating genocidal mass murderers and treasonous leaders, and what monuments everywhere to remind you of what they will do to you and what they have done to you and are continuing to do to you. This is a way beyond anything that we can deal with in any kind of reform matter. This is a hostile people carrying their hostile thoughts of racism into legislation. You don't think that trickles down into the prison population? Brother, this is, this is why I always respond to people who go rah-rah, let's go vote, with a simple proposition. Okay, go vote. But what you need to do before you vote is write down at least 10 names of people who are running for office or people who currently hold office in your local municipality. Find out who's on the ballot. Find out what some of the choices are. Find out who some of the judge candidates are, who some of the prosecutor candidates are. Go down the ballot to the bottom and find out everybody on there and make an informed decision based on these people's political career before they ever, you know, got on this ballot today, make an informed decision about their professional career, about their education, about their bloodline, where they come from, who their ancestors are. You need to find out this information because casting an ignorant, uninformed, dumbass general vote, typically if you're non-white, along the lines of everybody Democratic, I'm going to vote for them, is committing political murder. Add to the fact that you just go out and vote for these people. You've never spoken to any of them. 
you don't have any leverage whatsoever. You don't have any kind of political collateral. You've never made a political contribution to any of their campaigns. They don't owe you anything, and they're not going to give you anything. So you end up with people like this who are voted in, who are brothers in the fraternity, who are in the good old boy clubs and in the country clubs who are grandfathered in through bloodlines and their great-grandfather was somebody who was attached to these people whose monuments they're going to give their last breath to make sure they protect because those are friends of their family. This is how you end up with people like that mayor that you were talking about. This is how you end up with this lawmaker that we're talking about. This is how you end up with lawmakers like Cecil McCrory in Mississippi giving no-bid contracts to the state of Mississippi prison system for millions and millions of dollars and then going around and writing the laws to create more sentencing, and then being over the school board to make sure the school pipeline ends up in the prison. This is how these people systematically oppress and abuse and terrorize you, and your only response is to say once every four years, man, y'all better go vote. You sound like a damn fool. And then to tell you if you don't vote, you can't talk. Like, I'm not a victim of this like everybody else is. <laughs> Hey, I'm so bad, guys. Talk unless I endorse the people who are killing my people. I just I say, say this about about voting. I am one of the million dot com because the way you know impending revolution, as I always say, because I think that the uh, a new republic needs to be uh, erected. I know some people ain't willing to go as far as that, and they think that we can reform this system. So. You know, uh, for those that are trying so that we can say we did everything peacefully possible to try to end, end slavery. But if if you're ca no casting a vote, uh, an individual vote really, really don't matter in the grand scheme of things when you're talking about sectional issues, whether you're talking about progressives, new abolitionists, you know, uh, uh, uh the black voting block, the Hispanic voting block, the Jewish voting block. If you're not voting, if your vote number one isn't informed, then you know that you'll be like, you know, these 80 year old grandmothers that they're trotting out for Hillary Clinton and saying, I don't know this person's name, but I remember hearing Hillary Clinton's name. And then, you know, people are driving you to the pole to pull the lever. So, I mean, that's not an informed vote. And then if you are not, forming uh voting blocks okay uh uh then you know uh, uh again you know you're not playing the game how they play the game and like johanna mentioned if you're not donating to nobody's campaign if you're not the apac lobby if you're not the private prison lobby and you don't you're not pooling funds to to play uh, in, in the game and get your candidates out there and have people beholden to you then i would agree it's a waste of time you know, but the masses ain't to the point of no return yet on it's either give me, a, you know, liberty and freedom or give me death. We got in this slavery, man. You know what I'm saying? Right. right. Well, you know, you guys already know I'm uh, along the line of I can't see a compromise. I, I, I just can't see any kind of compromise occurring in slavery when it comes to politics. You either end it or you don't. There's no in between in this type of thing. So that, that's when, when, I, when I look at the field and I see that not a single candidate has put this as his top his or her top priority, hasn't even recognized it as a problem, and won't admit it is occurring. I can't find it in myself to vote for that. I just can't. Why would I? 
I guess that goes into. I believe in quid pro quo, like you know, Bur uh, uh, that story I reported on that I'm working on, like Al Sharpton said, Hillary Clinton, uh, uh, surrogates came to him and said, "Well, what you want?" And he said, "You know, I don't want anything. I got everything I ever wanted. I've been the most seen civil rights leader with a president. Went to the Super Bowl with the president. Had Christmas at the White House. And and I was thinking, well, dude, well." You know, they asked you for something. They said what it was going to take. Then why didn't you say in slavery? Well, we know he's not an abolitionist yet. But any of these issues like, you know, well, I need you to remove cannabis from the scheduled list. You know, anything that's going to free at least, you know, some slaves and, and pending again, uh, uh, another civil war to end slavery once and, and for all. But I mean, when you're you're not asking for anything, you know what I'm saying? And apparently in the past seven years, he hasn't you know, really put on any pressure to the president. What good has all that access uh, done him? So that, is, you know, when we see things like that, that is disheartening. <laughs> and I can see why people have, you know, uh, a very, they have no trust in the voting process. But again, pending revolution, I believe in being engaged in every uh, people activity that there is. So we'll know how what's going on and can warn people about what they're talking about and what they're doing. Then once we get in the information, well, hell, it's on the masses to decide when enough is enough. You said what good has it done him? It protected his black neck. <laughs> That's what good is doing him. He want to keep his head on his shoulders. He's, he knows what happened. Al Sharpton ain't no fool. He might be not everything we want him to be. But one thing he's not is a fool. And he knows if he actually made a push for anything that really changed anything, he would be done for. They You're saying he's a coward, really. You, I'm sure uh, Martin Luther King knew that people want to kill him. Uh, Malcolm X knew people want to kill him. Any of that side of Shakur, they tried to kill her. They killed Fred Hampton. Right. So it's not right. a matter of not being a fool. It's a matter of being a coward and not being who you put yourself out there to be, which is down for the struggle, life or death. So we're talking about cowards. Right, right. Well, we see that these prisons are diversified. As we talked about with Brother George Mallinckrodt, they're moving their. Uh, holdings into the mental health arena now, where they can manage the mental, mentally ill in the same way that they manage their prison for profit. And so let, me, let, me, let me say something about that, too, Max, just to bring the listener, maybe the casual listener, or somebody that's not up to speed on what's going on, to what's really at stake here. What happened originally over the last several years has been lobbying on the legislative level to change the laws and close down state mental uh, institutions, defund uh, the institutions that would protect and help to take care of the mentally ill in this country. That's how they started it. So this is parallel to how the jobs were shipped overseas to set up prison slavery in America to import the jobs back. So what they did first was shut down mental health facilities on the state level all over the country and defund those programs. So now that that has happened, we've seen it get to a point where there's nearly 400,000 people with mental ill mental illness issues in that are incarcerated, and only about 35 to 40,000 who are actually in state-run facilities. That if that dynamic doesn't blow your mind, what the hell are the mentally ill doing 
10 times as much incarcerated as they're being institutionalized where they can get some kind of help or some kind of a safe care. Why is that happening? Well, now you're about to find out why that's happening when Max tells you the story about how private prisons are getting into the mental health care arena. They already set this up, people. Well, actually, the, the story was going to go beyond that. Uh, we pointed out that they're getting into the healthcare arena, and we posted some information on New Abolitionist Radio that shows you exactly that. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll just scroll down a minute, see if I can get the quote for them. It says, private prison companies are expanding their markets and moving into the arena of community corrections and rehabilitation, says Ishi Cole, mental health and criminal justice coordinator at Grassroots Leadership. Even with changing criminal justice reform, these troubled corporations are continuing to find ways to profit off of people's confinement. And that's where a story where they're telling you how they're moving into these new arenas. Another arena that they have moved into, and we've documented it well here on New Abolitionist Radio over the years, is the for-profit probation arena. Well, not many people knew anything about this for-profit probation arena, and we have been pointing it out for the past three or four years now. And here's a, a new study that has just recently come out from the Robina Institute. It says, new data brief, American exceptionalism in probation supervision. And I'm just going to read uh, a little bit about uh, what this says. Maybe two, two paragraphs. The first paragraph says, the data brief demonstrates for the first time that America suffers from mass probation in addition to mass incarceration. Although probation has often been thought of as an alternative to prison or jail sentences, the U.S. has achieved exceptional levels of punitiveness in both incarceration and community supervision. Over the past several decades, the number of people under probation supervision in the U.S. has increased greatly. Nearly 4 million adults were under probation supervision across America at year-end 2013. In reporting, European countries with roughly twice the population of the U.S., only 1.5 million adults were under probation or supervision. And then a little further on, it goes on to say, high probation supervision rates cost American taxpayers a great deal of money. And before I finish the rest of that sentence, I want to change that perspective. It's not costing American taxpayers a great deal of money. That's not the whole thing of it. It's making private prisons a whole lot of money. That's what it should be saying instead. Because they're the ones making the money. And not just in the funding of probation agencies. National data suggests that a large share of all prison admissions come from probation revocation. A substantial number of which are for technical violations of sentence conditions rather than new criminal conduct. Far from being an alternative to incarceration, probation has been a feeder institution or a conduit to our prisons and jails. In this respect, misguided probation policy has almost certainly been a major contributor to America's excessive in prison policy. The problems of mass incarceration and mass probation are intimately linked, and they must be tackled together. Now, as far as I want to read about this, you can check it out on New Abolitionist Radio, but I would like to add this. You're damn right they're linked. They're linked under a title called Slavery. You can't keep fighting these things separately, as the story we'll go over later will explain. This is all symptoms of one thing, slavery and human trafficking. The same problem we've always had to deal with since the founding of this country. 
brother? You want me? Scotty? And then of course you're 100% correct, man. We, uh, <laughs> we struggle to get a united front, you know, in this fight. And that's really going to end up being our downfall if we don't change that sooner rather than later. It's just that simple. Striking at the root of the problem versus all of these different and varied and specialized and individualized and personal little stories and anecdotal attempts, you know, to, to go against evil. With, and, and we always say, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts, of course. So, yeah, it's good that more and more people are in the fight and bringing these things up. But ultimately, we're going to have to get on the same page about what is at the root of the problem. There's just no way around it. Well, in a related story that follows up on this, the National Legal Group, there's a national legal group that is seeking to end private probation services. The uh, One of the largest, country's largest attorney organizations voted overwhelmingly Saturday for a resolution seeking the abolition of use of private for-profit probation services. And they went in and kind of mirrored what we're saying, but just how wrong this is. But unlike many others, they're using the right word, abolish. Don't well, more and more people what starting should, to use that word. That, haven't, right. Aren't you finding more and people are starting to talk about uh, abolishing? I mean, come on, there's a big deal, regardless of what we think of Bernie Sanders as a, a person, as a candidate, as a part of the system, been in there 30 years or whatnot. I, I think it's historic that he's the first candidate, along with the others who introduced that bill, to abolish private prisons and jails. I mean, I just don't, that's just something unheard of, you know, in the last 150 years, I would say, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys. And I'm starting to see that uh, language start to appear, you know, uh, in the media more and more. So a lot of the old is being made new again because we found we've never finished the biggest fight we've ever had to face as a people. And that was crazy. So the old is coming back. Everything from Garveyism. To abolitionism is coming back because they're needed to fight this same fight that never ended. You see, many of our elders today were participants of the civil rights era, didn't have to fight what we're fighting now on the level we're fighting now. There wasn't two and a half million people in prison. There wasn't 13 million going to jail. As a matter of fact, during the height of the civil rights movement, there were less than 200,000 people in jail and, and prisons nationwide. Less than 200,000. And now we have 24 million going through our system every single year. So this is new phenomenon that has to be faced in a different way. And the different way is abolition. Well, let's take our last break and then we can uh, continue on with... Uh the last 25 minutes of, of the program. But again, uh, I just want to again express my appreciation for the victims of 21st century slavery and human trafficking for calling in and sharing their stories, you know, from from George Mallinckrodt to uh, the other guy out there in California who's a nurse 
who called in and told us how they're killing people uh, to to the uh, lady who called in and, and said what she saw on in the you know uh, on the woman's side of, in the prisons and, and whatnot the brutality and um, you know her being worried about a, a, a inmate or uh, an enslaved person uh, that she's worried about and doesn't know what happened to and, and to the brother they called in and said you know um, how they are torturing people and it's like a game the mental terrorism that they're you know waging on people so that that's important for people to call in and share you know their stories and I'm glad on New Abolitionist Radio we have victims and then we have those who worked inside the system on the other side but came to the realization that hey this this ain't right you know this is just not acceptable and they stepped forward and uh, even if they didn't know when they made that decision firsthand they have now come to know that abolitionism is what's needed that this isn't uh, anything other than slavery. So do uh, we want to go ahead and take this last break? Uh, do we lose everyone? I'm not sure. Oh, we, I'm sorry. Uh, we lost Max. Uh, Max will be calling back in. I'm, I'm sure. So we'll go ahead and take this break, and me and Johanna uh, will continue on. Uh, with the show, you're listening to uh, New Abolitionist Radio. We broadcast every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time here on Black Talk Radio Network, which is a digital radio station and a platform. Uh, but we're trying to provide new black media for the new millennium. And we will be right back. sick and tired of this bullshit, this country where one minority group dominates and dictates what the majority is supposed to be doing. I don't think that's the way it works. And that minority group, they don't do anything productive for this country. Well, look, I'm not going to say that they're, they're Except for us. the NBA. And if it wasn't for the NBA, Joe, like I always say, our country would have the world's tallest garbage man. Okay? Thank God for the NBA. We need people like Frank on television so that a lot of our people can see that they're not paranoid, unjustifiably. This type of white man doesn't exist, doesn't exist, doesn't exist, This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. And welcome back to New Abolitionist. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Our next story is coming up. It's tying all of this together. Everything we've been talking about every week, we do the same thing. We tie together a nice little neat bow for you. Well, this story comes out of truthout.org, and it says capitalism, slavery, racism, and imprisonment of people of color cannot be separated. 
by Mark Carlin from 2000. And this is an interview that he did. And uh, I just want to read some parts of it. Uh, you can read the rest on New Abolitionist Radio, as usually. And it says, the following is an interview with Dr. Dennis Child, author of Slaves of the State, Black Incarceration from the Chain Gang to the Penitentiary, where he starts out by asking, can you summarize the tragic irony of the 13th Amendment exception clause? And Dr. Child replies, yes. What I describe in the book along these lines is something that prisoners, activists, and scholars from Angela Davis to the Shadows Corps have spoken about for years. The fact that, or the fact that what is indisputably the most progressive document in U.S. legal history, the 13th Amendment, the U.S. Constitution that freed African slaves, actually reinstituted enslavement through racial, capitalist, misogynist, imprisonment. The language of the amendment states, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime where the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist in the United States. This punitive exception represented legal cover for what enslaved in the state are described as an overall system of public, private, neo-slavery from the chain gang to the prison plantation. Punitive with the convict leasing system, the last of which represented an outright genocidal system where private corporations such as U.S. Steel would work prisoners in industries ranging from turpentining to coal and iron mining to agricultural production. The death rates at convict lease camps were absolutely staggering, reaching as high as 50% per annum. But as I argue in the book, the exception clause ushered in a system of neo-slavery that continues to submit prisoners to conditions that amount to a collective, collectivized situation of living death, or what Munia Abu-Jamal defines as a slow death under the prison industrial complex. This interview is fascinating. It's a, as I said, it's another perspective. It's not different from our perspective. It's different from most of America's perspective. And it's from a scholar who you should be reading. You should get this book and check it out. I would consider it maybe an alternative or an addition to Jim Crow and mass incarceration by Michelle Alexander, where he takes this to the next logical level. That next logical level that everybody seems to be unwilling to cross is this slavery. Brothers? Scotty Reed, Your Honor? Well, I mean, of course, it is slavery. So <clears throat> I appreciate his perspective, and I'm looking forward to uh, to that book arriving in my mailbox any day now. So <laughs> I'm going to give a report on that once I get a chance, once I receive it and get a chance to, to read it and study it. But um, tying into that, what he was saying with the death rate per annum, you know, on the chain gangs, and we know that the mines uh, were uh, – some, one of the places where convict leasing and uh, where prison or where slavery migrated, you know, from the plantations right into the mines to help with the industrial revolution, um, the building of of the North industrial uh, industrial complex itself was the result of plantation slavery becoming a state sanctioned entity. So we know that this is the case, and I, I've talked about on this program before. We found the records of the earliest known life insurance policies in American history. I mean, the numbers are clear. The policies are numbered in the double and triple digits. 
these are the first mineral policies of life insurance that were taken out by companies. One of the companies I remember was Aetna. There are several other companies that are still in existence today, um, still operating by the same name. And those things that they were insuring was their slave property, who was working in mines, who were working on chain gangs and working in various slave, you know, slave jobs and trades. These slave owners were insuring their property with these same companies that are that are life and health insurance companies to this day. So people, it's an unbroken chain. It's an unbroken timeline. It is an unbroken narrative. It's an it's an uninterrupted reality. You know, somebody Period. just shared yeah. a meme in our group moved to abolish 21st century slavery. Sean Jamadar uh, shared this meme and it has slavery on one side with a series of pictures below that column and war on drugs on the other side. So they show, you know, uh, uh, pictures uh, with, um, with captions on them and they show from the, you know, 1700s, 1800s, capture slaves and under slavery, then under the war on drugs, capture offenders, then under slavery, fill up plantations, under war on drugs, fill up prisons, under slavery, force them to work, under, uh, under uh, war on drugs, force them to work. So it is indeed. I mean, all the 13th Amendment did, all the Civil War did was just reset slavery. Okay, that's all it did. It reset it. It transformed it from the plantation to the prison. But really, it never left the plantation because then those plantation owners could simply lease them out through the convict leasing program. So all it, all they did was like, look at it like this. Instead of going to Africa and catching a whole bunch of people. And bringing them over here in change, you know, transatlantic slave trade, which had been abolished by that time. Uh, but you just let all these slaves go. And then you just go back out there and catch them. And then you put them in court and convict them. You know, and, and it's that simple when you break it down to it. And it continues. The chain continues. But again, in the people activity area of politics, they did pass laws. The black codes, the loitering, the home, you know, and we still see that same element. So that's why I can't abandon politics. And I'm glad that we do have abolitionist candidates like Christopher Irvin running for uh, Baltimore City Council. And, you know, we got to we got to raise up more abolitionist candidates so we can always say, look. We doing it the peaceful way. We believe in death by a thousand paper cuts. So, you know, you the ones that don't want to stop uh, uh, practicing slavery. So now it has come to as it had come. To, it has come to a head, as they say. And now, you know, we might just have to have a civil war. But we ain't got there yet, y'all. So, you know, but the people activity area politics controls all of the modern slave codes. It's always been legal. Slavery's always been legal. So. But, but that book, that's just another, that's more, that's another book that you can throw in the pile of another scholar acknowledging that the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery, but merely uh, transported it to the prisons. Uh, well, I'll just repeat for our listeners, uh, and we are pressed for time. We've only got about 12 minutes or so left. There's still a couple of stories and our segments to do. So we may have to skip some of them. If there's any stories from our uh, introduction that we don't get to do, just look on New Abolitionist Radio for the articles so you can see them. Everything doesn't always make it to the to, to the show because we just we're limited on time. It's really just that simple. We could do this all day long and still not have enough time. Uh, so we give you what we can. In the meantime, I, I did want to move on just briefly to our next story, and that is the 
Colorado uh, 2015 marijuana tax results that just came out, man, and they're making money hand over freaking fist in Colorado. Meantime, in 2014, 50% of all arrests for drugs were marijuana charges. So you got these people making huge amounts of money, and people are still going to prison for the same thing that these corporations are making money selling legally. Yeah, that that doesn't that story pertain though to 135 million in tax revenue in Colorado? I mean, this is the first yeah. such report, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, to come out. And so, right. you know, uh, uh, I'm sure they probably, maybe, I wonder how much in total sales did they have? They might have topped a billion dollars. I don't know. I don't know what the tax rate is in Colorado, but you know, 135 million dollars. Say that again. Total sales. Total sales in the first state to legalize recreational marijuana reached nine hundred and ninety-six million one hundred and eighty-four thousand seven hundred eighty-seven. So billion dollars. Wow, wow. So that's what that's about what a ten percent, little over ten percent, almost thirteen percent tax rate, and they were able to generate one hundred and thirty-five million dollars, and thirty-five million of that went to. Uh, the schools to, you know, uh, wish they could use that in Detroit, some of that money in Detroit to fix them dilapidated, uh, buildings up there with rats and mold and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and then I wonder how much they saved in, in, you know, cutting back on slave catcher overtime and, and not having to process these cases through the courts and, and, you know, feeding the beast, providing jobs for people who may realize or, um, may not realize that they got a job because of slavery. I'm going to have to look into it uh, to find out what have been the tax implications or the payout on the private prison contracts that weren't uh, maintained at 80 and 90 and 100 uh, percent. Colorado had a ratio that was either 80 or 90 percent. Um, I don't think they had any that were 100, but I know they had some of those state contracts that were at least 80 or 90 percent to capacity. Uh, for, you know, 15, 20, 25 years. So just because they legalized marijuana and had a billion dollar year, they still 15 years out, 20 years out on fulfilling their contract unless something major happened. So I'd be interested in with the decline in arrest for that and the evidence we've shown, you know, over the years that obviously these small time, you know, uh, nonviolent person uh, crimes that are not even against persons but are, are drug related. And how that's a, you know, an unbroken chain leading right into the prisons and, and the slave system and all of that. I'm interested in with the being legalized, how much, how much of a decline in population did they have and what kind of, uh, what kind of penalties are the taxpayers paying? Right, right. How much of that possibly $135 million sure. still is going to go towards that private prison contract? The private prison. Right, right, right. right. Colorado, yeah, Colorado has a contract like that. Prison. I know Louisiana, Tennessee, other states have contracts with CCA. They got to keep them, you know, ninety percent full. And even if they're not, the taxpayer's still on the hook for it. But is that are those do those contracts exist in Colorado that you know of? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. They okay. Do. All right. Yes, not shocking. Like, I'm, I'm gonna, 
I'll find out the information here a little bit later tonight. I, and uh, for any of the I listeners, do. And, you know, in the future, look on the New Abolitionist Radio page and move to abolish 21st century slavery and human trafficking. Group. I'll post the information. I do remember, Colorado though. Colorado is the supermax capital of the nation. Yeah, I was going to say uh, that. Uh, we also reported on, on riots in the immigration detention facilities in Colorado. Work stoppages and, and strikes. Yeah, and they're involved in human trafficking as well uh, because they ship prisoners from all across the country to go stay in these supermax prisons with these guaranteed contracts with 90% occupancy. And uh, that's what he's saying to me. And again, you know, uh, President Obama, again, he has really no legitimate explanation as to why he won't remove cannabis from the Schedule II list of drugs maintained by the corrupt DEA. You know, that would just that alone would affect impact so many people behind bars. And then also we're talking about, you know, then, of course, following up with some uh, Redeem Act type legislation. And, and I know in Maryland they restored uh, a quote unquote felons right to vote as soon as they get out of prison. So they still got to be repaired. But, but he has no logical explanation. With all these different states that are bring, making money off of drugs for you to keep that on Schedule 2 list where other crooked ass states can continue to get federal contract money to prosecute that. See, uh, Well, that goes back man. to DNC. It goes back to DNC where we see the people in power right now are in bed with these private prisons. They don't want this war on drugs to end in any way, shape, or form, even if it's just something like marijuana being legalized because it takes away from their prison investors pocket. Yeah, uh we will have to skip uh some of the segments yeah. uh so that we be all air on time. But again something come up. I'm kinda of babysitting right now, something come up. So I gotta step away again and I will be back. Y'all continue. Alright, well what we're gonna do is, as you said, we are gonna skip a, a story or two and I guess we're gonna go into our regular scheduled segment which would be, next would be our riders of the 21st century underground railroad. And Johanan, are you able to pull up any links? Johanan? No, sir, I don't have a link up. All right, well, if you just give me a second here, uh, I'll find... Yeah, Johanan sounds like he's still on the road. I was hearing cars and stuff, so you be careful. <laughs> you be careful out there, right? Yeah, just give me a second. I'm trying to find it in our long list of things that may have made it to the program and some that, that didn't. Uh, it's the story on the uh, Central Park Five. Johanan, if you could just give them a briefing uh, for what you know of Central Park Five while I find it. Absolutely, man. That's a, a story with uh, the, the five brothers that were illegally and wrongfully uh, arrested, detained, kidnapped, like the brother that called in and gave a report on the prison system, how they uh, will kidnap and abuse and ultimately murder as many people as they choose. Uh, these brothers survived in their physical form. They were changed mentally and emotionally forever. They were awarded uh, various settlements for their uh, wrongful incarceration. But during that time, that was another ramping up of the propaganda machine um, against black youth during those years, uh, the, the crack epidemic, the war on drugs. So the escalation was very high at that time for the hyper-criminalization 
of blackness, which is we've discussed on this program before. Mm-hmm. And really, black criminality is just like currency for white supremacy. And we see that when we talk about white supremacy in the form of private prisons, <laughs> the war on drugs, the criminalization of these people, the poor, the non-white, to make them criminals to justify generating billions and billions of dollars by incarcerating and enslaving them. And these brothers fell right into that mess. Right, right. And, you know, I've been documenting this for some time now, writing about it, stories of it. And I remember that they used this as the catalyst for what we have at right now in mass incarceration. The Clintons actually used this story to push their agendas in 1994. The case happened in 1989. And Hillary Clinton at one point was speaking uh, about it where she said, uh, they are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, yeah. no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. Quote, unquote, Hillary Clinton, 1994, yep. regarding her crime bill. Using these five yep. kids as an example of how we are super predators and need to go to prison and forget about a revolving door. But what yep. uh, nobody mentioned then, and everybody knows now, is that these men were innocent from the very beginning. They were railroaded through this. They were uh, falsely accused and falsely charged and falsely imprisoned. And their story, the lie of their story, was used to increase the prison population and to create fear. The story that we have from townhall.com from 25 years ago, Trisha Mele, the Central Park jogger, was a 28-year-old employee for a prestigious Manhattan investment banker when she was mercilessly beaten, raped, and left dead by thugs. Mele lost approximately 80% of her blood. Her skull was fractured to the point that her one eye had popped out of its socket. On a scale of 3 to 15, that neuro- neurologist used to gauge brain functioning, Mele was assigned a rating of 4. She spent nearly the next two weeks in a coma, and experts expected her to die. This crime became a racially explosive issue for Mele was white and her assailants were not. Of the 30 or so minority youth that had been randomly terrorizing park dwellers, four blacks and one Hispanic confessed to having engaged in the attack on Mele. Antoine McRae, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana, Carrie Wise, and Youssef Salam were arrested, tried, convicted, and issued prison sentences. But in 2002, long after the Central Park Five as documentarian and apologists for the convicts Ken Burns has dubbed them, had done their time, and long after the statute of limitations on the 13-year-old crime had expired, convicted serial rapist and murderer Mateus Reyes, who was already serving a life term, convinced to being Mary's lone assailant. DNA testing confirmed that it was Mateus Seaman and his alone that was found on Mary's body and around the scene of the crime. Shortly afterwards, District Attorney Robert uh, Morgenthau prevailed upon his state Supreme Court to vacate the convictions of the Central Park Five. Not unsurprisingly, the latter sued the city of New York for wrongful imprisonment to the tune of $250 million. In June, courtesy of the illustrious Mayor de Blasio, the Central Park Five discovered that they would receive $40 million. Not since the O.J. Simpson acquittal have we witnessed this gross travesty of justice. Yet it is also a travesty of intelligence, for only a fool, or perhaps a liar, could think that the Central Park Five were innocent of anything 
much less much less the attack on Trisha Maley. Wow, they are trying to ruin this boys, aren't they? For starters, no one has ever disputed that the Harlem thugs have been in Central Park that fateful evening for the sole purpose of assaulting and mugging innocents, one of whom have been bludgeoned with a pipe. As in the want of power, the five set upon only those who they outnumbered, those who were weaker and more vulnerable. This they confessed from the moment they were in police cut to the present day, they have never retracted this confession. Yet the five also proceeded immediately to implicate them. I can't even read the rest of this stuff, man. Who the hell wrote this? Yeah, co- we yeah we're out of time away also. from the truth. And we, yeah, so, we're out of time yeah. with five minutes left. All I want to say is that welcome to freedom for you five brothers who were exonerated despite whatever writers are trying to say about you now. Yeah. Uh, you deserve everything that you're getting now with this $40 million. Salute. Wow. Reparations, that's what he got, because it is slavery. Some yeah, people, they found out in the court case that they have manipulated evidence, that they have false testimony. Some patterns and practice. Cops coerced the teenage boys into, committing, into admitting to murders they didn't commit. It's a whole nine, and then use their story to create more proof. Yep. Well, we're coming up on our last segment, and then we're just uh, we're going to do our good. Well, Max, we are, we, we actually are out of segment, out of right? time, Max. We only I'm only have like three minutes. We're we're out of time. Okay. Well, we'll put our abolitionist in profile on the new abolitionist page. Please check it out. I made a nice graphic uh, for her uh, this week, and it comes with a speech she made that you'll find incredible. So uh, make sure you check it out there. Uh, I guess we'll end with our final statements for the evening. Um, Brother you, or uh, my final statement will I'll do an abolitionist profile. I got so much trouble on my mind. Refuse Uh-oh. to lose. Here's your ticket. Here the drama get wicked. On New Abolitionist Radio, our abolitionist in profile this week is George Mallinckrodt. And every caller who called in and shared their stories tonight, uh, they have confessed to be abolitionists. And all the abolitionists who are listening or on the phone line right now, you are our featured uh, abolitionist in profile this week. Salute. Awesome. Salute to you. I like that twist. Yeah, salute, salute indeed to the Central Park Five as well as to our abolitionists and profile. I just want to say in closing, you know, <clears throat> I've I've really been hard on the Black Lives Matter movement and various other movements that have popped up in the last couple of years, uh, particularly the last uh, calendar year after the Michael Brown death. Uh, we saw some come after Trayvon Martin and Jordan Davis speaking up, and the whole Black Lives Matter movement was definitely a part of that. Recently, uh, the ladies that helped to create that. Um, came out and said that they were not going to uh, put an official endorsement for the Black Lives Matter movement on any candidate for president. And uh, I think that's a very wise thing to do. They were saying that they're not in a position to uh, produce their own candidate. They know that they don't have the political leverage to be able to require any candidate to, to adhere to any of their demands or deliver on any promises made and all they would ultimately be doing is giving their endorsement and giving power and credibility to a candidate, but not receiving anything in return for the community. So that's wisdom like I really want to see and need to see out of our people. 
if you're about this life, you need to be wise about what you're doing and make the right kind of moves. So I just want to give a shout out to them. Peace to the abolitionists. Death to the oppressors. Remember, abolition is a reason for a revolution. A reason for a revolution so we can finally make some peace. There are more records of slave ships than one would dream. It seems inconceivable until you reflect that for 200 years ships sailed carrying farther slave. Ram, non, be non-violent. In the face of the violence that we've been uh, experiencing for the past 400 years, is actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime.